right, good morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. Uh, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, excited that you're, you're here with us. Uh, if you're new this morning, uh, my hope is that as you walk out of this place that you get a pretty good indication of who we are as a church and what we're, what we're really going after. And I think you'll see that even in the psalm that we're going to look at this morning. We currently are, are in the midst of a summer sermon series entitled Songs of the Savior. It's a 10-week exploration of the book of Psalms, and not just any 10 Psalms. We didn't just kind of cherry-pick which ones we wanted to do, but rather in preparation for our study of the book of Hebrews, which is coming in the fall, uh, we, uh, through preparation for that fall series, came to realize that the author of Hebrews references 10 particular Psalms in his writing. So we decided to take those 10 Psalms, take a look at them this summer in preparation for what's to come this fall. And what that means is that our time in the scriptures this summer is only going to enrich our time in the scriptures when we get to August, September, and and beyond. When we get to the book of Hebrews this fall, you'll be able to go back and access your notes from this very morning, even the podcast from this morning, and the weeks surrounding it that make up this summer series, and hopefully experience more of the fullness of what the book of Hebrews is about when we get there. The book of Psalms said it for weeks now, it's been referred to as the hymn book of the Old Testament, a collection of songs to be sung by God's people in response to his goodness, glory, and grace. The Psalms were sung collectively by God's people as they gathered in the temple in corporate worship. They were also used in private times of devotion, maybe like you've used them uh, in your life. We're talking about a, a book of the Bible that is considered so important that it's made its way into these tiny little versions of the New Testament, even though it's not part of the New Testament. It's a book that appeals to the whole person. It informs our thinking, it awakens our emotions, it directs our wills, it stimulates our our imaginations. It's a book that's that's meant to put a song in our hearts as we come face to face with who God is and who we are. In the Psalms, we encounter the, the beauty of God's character, his nature, his being, and we also encounter the fullness of the human condition, as we'll see this morning. The reason that we've entitled this series Songs of the Savior is this. The author of Hebrews tells us that these 10 Psalms in particular, and not just these, but really the entire book of Psalms, ultimately points to Jesus. Again, we're talking about the hymn book of the Old Testament, a collection of songs meant to be sung to God in response to his goodness, glory, and grace. God's goodness, glory, and grace are most surely revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so we sing psalms of praise to him as our coming Savior, King, and Judge. We sing psalms of lament to him as our high priest and advocate. We'll see that this morning. We sing psalms of thanksgiving to him for who he is and what he's done for us. We sing psalms of remembrance to him as we survey all of redemptive history that finds its fulfillment in him. We sing psalms of confidence to him because he's trustworthy. And we sing psalms of wisdom to him because he's the source of all wisdom and he is wisdom personified. Again, I've been saying it for weeks, the heart sings of that in which it delights. And so the hope for this series is that you would delight in God and that you, in seeing his goodness and glory and grace revealed in the face of Jesus Christ and in delighting in him and seeing him for who he is, that your life would become more and more a song of praise. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Psalm 102. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible with you as the churches give to you. Use it 
for the remainder of this summer and beyond to explore the truth claims of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll go ahead and get to work. God, I would imagine that many of us bring grief into this place this morning, loneliness, sickness, heartache, betrayal, and, and on and on we could go. God, I pray that our time in this particular psalm this morning, Psalm 102, would help us to get a better grasp on who you are, a bigger picture, a better understanding of really how big you are, a deeper understanding of our desperate need for you, just how really impoverished we are, how dependent on you we are, and that in the midst of the growing awareness of who you are and who we are, that the cross would loom larger in our lives, that we would walk away with a a more robust, honest understanding of what it means to live the Christian life. And you would draw us up into that this morning, no matter what we bring into this place. God, would you awaken our hearts? Would you awaken our slumbering minds this morning? Would you move by the power of your spirit? In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, it's been mentioned a couple times thus far this morning. Psalm 102 is what's known as a lament. In, in a lament, we encounter the writer pouring out to God his sorrow, his anger, his fear, his confusion, his, his disappointment, etc. We, we live in a broken world filled with sin, and what that means is that we're going to experience painful things along the way, you and I. We're going to experience grief at some point. We're going to experience loneliness. We're going to experience sickness, maybe even betrayal, most certainly heartache. And what we're going to see this morning is that God wants us to bring those painful things to him. He wants us to tell him exactly what we're going through and how we feel. And he wants us to remember that no matter how things may look and how we may feel in our present situation, that his character and promises are true. And one day he will return to, to wipe away our sorrows forever. In other words, what you're going to find in this morning's psalm is that you can complain to the Lord in a way that honors the Lord. That you can declare the pain of what you're going through in full disclosure while trusting God in the midst of that pain. We don't have to worship pagan gods. We worship the God of the Bible. And what that means is that we can bring our frustrations to him. He's not some impersonal God who simply expects to be appeased. He longs for a relationship with us. And sometimes relationships are most beautifully forged in the furnace of affliction. As Samuel Rutherford, the old Puritan, once said, when I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. I love that. It's in the dark places that we can invite God into our pain. It's in the dark places that we can know his comfort and care. It's in the dark places that we can put on a relationship, uh, on display a relationship with the divine and all of its heartache and beauty. One thing I can tell you this morning is that my head is up in the clouds Yesterday morning around 6 a.m., my wife got a phone call. Uh, we found out that her grandmother had passed away somewhere in the night. And yesterday was a bit of a whirlwind. Uh, we began to pack things, and I drove her halfway between here and, and where her family lives down in South Georgia. And my brother-in-law met us, and, and he took 
my wife and, and, and our girls the rest of the way so that I can come back and preach this morning and I'll get in a car as soon as this service is over. So if you're new and I don't meet you, I apologize now for that. And I'll drive down to South Georgia and we'll actually preach that funeral tomorrow. My head is up in the clouds, but my heart is fully invested in Psalm 102 this morning. The, the weightiness of what it's like to, to walk through sorrow, to, to know tears and grief, and to know what it's like to experience hope intermingled in, in all of that. The psalmist says, as an introduction, it says this. It says, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Psalm 102 is the prayer of a person going through a dark night of the soul, you might say. It it has a personal element to it, but it also has a corporate element to it. The psalmist considers himself to be a member of a community, namely Zion. Many scholars believe these words were recorded around the time of Israel's exile to Babylon. And so it's, it's both personal and collective anguish that we're talking about. There's something in this psalm for everyone that if you come in this morning feeling heartbroken, lonely, depressed, despairing. This psalm is for you. And if you come in this morning with people in your life who are heartbroken, lonely, depressed, despairing, this psalm is for you. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. That when the appendix ruptures, it jeopardizes the life of the entire body. And in the same way, when someone in our church family suffers, we should feel that to some degree, particularly those who are more tightly knit, their lives intertwined with those people. Their pain becomes our pain because God is knitting our hearts together. And so whether you come into this place hurting or not this morning, this psalm is for you. Verse one, the psalmist says this. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me. In the day of my distress, incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. This is a man in the furnace of affliction. This is not just a prayer, but a cry to God. He needs God to respond, not later, but now. He says, answer me speedily in the day when I call. I can't wait. Yet it seems as though God is distant. He says, do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Anyone else been there before? God, I need you right now. I need to know that you're listening, but it doesn't feel like you're there. Verse three, he goes on to pour out his heart. He says, for my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Here here you get a description of suffering in in all of its various aspects. Life as fleeting. Verse 3, my days pass away like smoke. Verse 11, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Feverish anxiety. Verse three, my bones burn like a furnace. Heartache, verse four, my heart is struck down like grass and is withered. Maybe even the language of spiritual drought there, the withered heart. Lack of appetite, verses four and five, I forget to eat my bread, my bones cling to my flesh. You ever been there? Going through such a deep anxiety that you don't even wanna eat? That language of my bones clinging to my flesh, it, it reminds me of the picture of Tom Hanks in Castaway. 
He just looks emaciated as he's stuck on this island by himself. And, and even Tom Hanks' character in that movie needed Wilson, the volleyball. He needed someone to walk with him through that dark night of the soul, that season in which he was in anguish. Tells you something of human nature. We're not meant to go at it alone. Groaning, verse 5. Loneliness, verse 6, I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. Verse 7, I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. And then sleeplessness, verse 7, I lie awake. You ever been there? It takes you hours to fall asleep at night. Whatever you're going through, you need that little friend known as Benadryl to, to get you into a place of slumber in the late hours. He goes on to say in verse eight, all the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Here the psalmist experienced rejection. Verse eight, all the days my enemies taunt me. They use my name for a curse. We see mourning, for I eat ashes like bread. Ashes are a, a symbol of mourning in the Bible. We see uncontrollable weeping, verse 9. My tears are mingled with my drink. I can't even get through a cup of coffee without tears falling into the cup. And then in verse 10, the psalmist brings God into that picture. All of the anguish is because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. Here he addresses God as the cause of his anguish. He says, you God, you've lifted me up like a, a ship at sea on the rolling waves, and then you've dashed me down upon the rocks. What do you do with that? Not every experience of suffering is due to sin on the part of the sufferer. Make no mistake about that. That may be part of the psalmist story. We don't really know. He doesn't go into a moment of confession he doesn't go into a moment of repentance from sin. It's possible. It may be why God feels so distant to him, but it may be that he's one of the godly people who are exiled along with the wicked, like Daniel. He may be bearing the affliction of his people in some way. We just don't know. Whether this is a Job-like experience or a consequence of personal sin, what we do know is that regardless of how we end up in those dark nights of the soul, the appropriate response is to turn to God rather than away from God to cry out to him. Can anyone in this room relate to these things as we walk through this list from verses three through 11? At first, the Psalms like this seem like they may be for a minority of people who are in the darkest of dark places, but it's really a prayer that any of us can grab hold of in those moments when everything seems to come unraveled, in those moments of heartache, in those moments when we're lonely, in those moments when your appetite has left you because the sorrow is so heavy in those moments that weigh on you so heavily that you struggle to sleep at night, in those moments when the tears won't seem to run their course, you're not alone. You're not the only one, nor am I. It's not a question of whether we will experience pain. It's a question of what we'll do with it. The early church father Augustine once said this. He said, God had only one son without sin, but he had no sons without affliction. That even Jesus himself experienced many of these things. He knows what it's like to weep. 
He knows what it's like to experience loneliness. He knows what it's like to be rejected, which is an imp- a pretty incredible thing to say of one's God, is it not? Christianity is the only religion in which the divine can empathize with human beings like you and me. And he does, he cares. Sometimes we, the church, we don't help his cause. We don't put his empathy on display because that comes at a price. It requires entering into another's affliction. And let's be honest, it's a lot easier to avoid people like that. The propensity of the human heart is oftentimes to look the other way than to move towards people who are going through these kinds of things. But this psalm speaks of a God who looks in the direction of the destitute and hears their cries. If you come in this morning in a good place, you have an opportunity to put the compassion of God on display. As one of our volunteers in our pre-service meeting made a point to say as we were praying, compassion by definition is co-suffering. There's something beautiful about the family of God coming alongside one another in those dark nights of the soul. And yes, it'll cost you. Jesus' compassion for us cost him his life. But it's what the, the gospel compels us to do. The church looks at Jesus in his voluntary suffering on her behalf and says, how can I come alongside others in their suffering? That for the psalmist, pain becomes redemptive. He goes on to say this, maybe the most glorious words in all of this psalm, but you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered Throughout all generations, you will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord. And all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. These are some pretty incredible verses. There are those who try to deal with the problem of evil and suffering in the world by saying that God's either not all powerful or he's not all good. That he's able but not willing or he's willing but not able. And the psalmist declares, no, he's both. You, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You're sovereign. You're seated on your throne. You're in full control of the world you've created. And alongside that, he regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. He's willing to interact with human suffering. This is the God who, verse 14, brought judgment upon Israel for her rebellion against him. But this is also the God who, verse 17, regards the prayers of the destitute. This is the God who you can cry out to in your darkest night of the soul. He may not respond in the way that we would like him to. His timing may not be our timing but he does not despise our prayers. There's not a single prayer that you pray that he despises. Whatever his response, he has the ultimate thought of redemption and the greater good in his mind in terms of where it's all going. We really do have two options in those dark nights of the soul. We can interpret God's character through the lens of our circumstances. That's one way to do it. Because I'm going through blank, God must be blank. And oftentimes that's that's where we go in moments of affliction. Or we can interpret our circumstances through the lens of God's character, which is what the psalmist does. In the midst of of blank, in the midst of this thing that I'm going through, God is wise, God is good, God is in control. 
Though my circumstances are ever changing, God never changes. Zion won't lie in ruins forever. She won't always be stones and dust. She will be a light to the nations. She will be brought from destitution to glory. We know, looking at Israel's history, that this glory of Zion did not come in the psalmist's day. We know that there was a temple built in the post-exilic community, but it was nothing like the temple that Solomon had built. We know that Israel was not self-governing. They were under the governance of the Persian Empire. We know that the Ark of the Covenant had not been rebuilt. Many of the vessels of the temple were likely not there. We know that people who lived between the Old and New Testament eras in that 400 years of darkness still talked about being in exile. That was their perspective because the glories of the the past were not being fulfilled post-exile. That the psalmist, along with all of Israel, had to look to something future. And that something was inaugurated in Jesus' first coming. The establishment of his kingdom. His coming to rescue his people from sin and death and to build his church, Zion, brick by brick. And you're one of those bricks if you're a follower of Jesus. And the story's not over. Like the psalmist, you and I look to the future for something better. This world has a not yet element to it. We don't live in a world absent of affliction, absent of pain, absent of loneliness, absent of despair. But there's coming a day when all those things that make the world broken, ugly, disjointed, and sad will be wiped away forever. That as the psalmist longed for the first coming of Jesus, so we long for the second coming of Jesus. As the psalmist longed for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, so we long for the new Jerusalem. A city that will shine with the brilliance of God's splendor forever. No more affliction. No more pain. No more grief. No more death. Safe in the arms of God forever. Won't that be glorious? Verse 18, the psalmist goes on to say, Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. The, The language here again is future tense. The psalmist looks to a day when future generations will praise the Lord. That's you and me. A generation to come, he says, a people yet to be created. And not created in the sense of yet to be born, but rather created in the sense of becoming God's people. Peter talks this way, uh, 1 Peter 2.10, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That the psalmist is talking about future generations who will be called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Again, this psalm finds its initial fulfillment in the return of God's people from exile, but it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. Verse 19, God looked down from his holy height. He took notice of man's desperate situation. Israel's affliction in Babylonian exile, for sure, and ultimately our desperate situation with respect to sin. Verse 20, God not only saw, but he heard. He heard the groans of the prisoners Israel's enslavement in Babylonian captivity and ultimately our enslavement to sin. And God not only looked and heard, but he responded. He acted. He set free those who were doomed to die. He set the Israelites free from Babylonian captivity and ultimately he set us free from the sentence of death that hung over our heads because of our sin. I mean, isn't that what happened when you met Jesus? 
No longer a slave to sin. No longer under sin's dominion, Romans 6. No longer under a sentence of death. That Jesus died our death. He bore our condemnation. He put the keys into the shackles of sin, freeing us to praise him this morning. What's the appropriate response to the God who sees, hears, and acts on our behalf? The answer, according to verses 21 and 22, worship. That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. That he puts a redemptive song in our mouths. That's what this series is all about. He's worthy of our praise. No matter what we experience in life, we all know something of the mercy of God and his name is Jesus. It's quite amazing. If you've ever felt like you needed to be good enough to get God to look your way, this psalm refutes that kind of thinking. These verses reveal a God who looks in the direction of the destitute, of those who need his rescue. Charles Spurgeon once said this, he said, Let all souls that have been set free from the crafty malice of the old dragon with even greater gratitude magnify the Lord of infinite compassion. That no matter what else may come our way, God did not leave us dead in our trespasses. He saw our need for a savior and he did something about it. Infinite compassion. And listen, I, I know it's, it's hard, especially in those dark nights of the soul when you're being run through the furnace of affliction to declare that God is good and worthy of praise. I don't wanna trivialize that, but it doesn't make it any less true. He's been unbelievably good to us in Christ. He saw our greatest affliction and he rescued us from it. And so the call is to praise him, church. Goes on to say this in verses 23 and 24. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Kind of strange. It goes uncharacteristically dark here in verses 23 and 24. Usually Psalms end with, on, a, on a high note. And so you might go, what, what's going on here? His sufferings, again, remind us of the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus knew what it was like to experience an untimely death. He didn't make it to old age. He died, he carried his cross as a man in his 30s. What, what do we do with the darkness of verses 23 and 24? I mean, for one, I think it communicates something of what the human experience is like. Sometimes it doesn't end in just the fullness of joy, absent of sorrow, but even the ending has a little intermingling of sorrow with hope. But there are a couple of things I think that are helpful to take note of in these verses that come alongside of that thought. For one, there is a message of hope in verses 23 and 24. It, real, it reveals itself in the recording of a simple pronoun. Oh my God. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that God is involved in the lives of his creatures. That word my is a big deal if you've known suffering. That though the Christian can be stripped of everything else, he or she cannot be stripped of Jesus. He is ours and we are his. I love what George Swinnick once said. He said, no love potion was ever so effectual as this pronoun that it stirs the hearts of those in the furnace of affliction. You're my God. You're my God. That the dark nights of the soul, they, they really do reveal the nature of just how precious Jesus is to us. Those seasons of affliction, they present us with the critical question, is he enough? 
Is he really enough? Sometimes something as simple as a pronoun can keep us going. The other thing to consider about verses 23 and 24 are this. These verses, they actually do set the stage for a glorious finale. These verses exist to make verses 25 through 28 all the more glorious. That we're meant to see God stand out in the final four verses of this psalm. That God is not frail like us. He's eternal. He's steady. He's unchanging. The psalmist goes on to say, verse 25, Of old you laid the the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. That before time and space existed, God was there. He's eternal. He created this glorious theater known as the cosmos with stage lights hanging in the form of sun, moon, and stars. And not only is he without without beginning, he's without end. He will outlast all of creation. Creation as we know it will be redeemed from the curse pronounced upon her in a garden so very long ago. We can read about that in Romans chapter 8. And we see here that God in the midst of all of that change is unchanging. And that's good news in the midst of those dark nights of the soul. When our hearts are like pinballs, just moving back and forth, ebbing and flowing from hope to despair, God is steady. He's unchanging. He's the same. He is who he is. His character is trustworthy and his promises are true. And not only that, as we and all of creation grow weary in the midst of those seasons when everything comes unraveled, God never grows weary. He never gets tired. He's strong. He's able. He can handle our burdens in those seasons of pain. This is all good news for those of you who find yourself in the furnace of affliction this morning. God is steady. He's trustworthy. He's compassionate. And he's strong. Which leads me to one of a couple of questions we've been seeking to answer each week of this series. The first is this. How does this psalm point to Jesus? We've, we've talked about Jesus a good bit through the course of this passage thus far. Most of which has to do with the fact that Jesus is the ultimate sufferer. As Isaiah declares it, Jesus knows true sorrow and affliction. Isaiah 53 says this. He, this is a, a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That Jesus knows what it's like to walk through the furnace of affliction. He knows what it's like to experience pain, sorrow, grief, rejection. And here's the unbelievable piece of it. He did that for you. He did that for me. He entered into the world as we know it, and he surrounded himself with everything that makes this world sad. 
He lived the life that we could never live, a perfect sinless life. He died the criminal's death that we deserve to die. Our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. He experienced the greatest affliction the world has ever known. Jesus did. Think about it. Like the psalmist, he cried out in his dark night of the soul, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is why the author of Hebrews can tell us in chapter four of his writing, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Like the psalmist, we get to cast our cares on, on one who truly understands, namely Jesus. He's far more qualified to handle our cares than we are. And he invites us to approach his throne whenever we want. But here's the fascinating thing. It's kind of mind-blowing. That's not the way the author of Hebrews ultimately uses this psalm at all. He doesn't use it to declare Jesus' experience of affliction and his ability to empathize with us, though that's true. The author of Hebrews uses verses 25 through 27 of this psalm to declare that Jesus is greater than the angels. In other words, he uses this psalm not to declare the glory of Jesus' humanity and affliction and suffering, but rather his divinity. He uses this psalm to declare that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is steady. Jesus is unchanging. The same Jesus who entered into our affliction is sovereign over all affliction. He's in control of everything. He created the heavens and the earth. He was there. And he will recreate the heavens and the earth when he returns to make everything sad, untrue, and bring about the greatest of Happy, happily ever afters the world has ever known. That the one who knows your pain better than anyone is the very same one who will wipe it away one day forever. He'll wipe away the tears. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. Which brings me to the other question that we've been seeking to answer each week of this series. What is our song to sing as the church if it's true that the heart sings of that in which it delights, what are we meant to delight in as we consider Psalm 102? As I've done in previous weeks, I'll offer you a few lyrics that I think would be worthy of the track, and you may add some lyrics to these. Number one, he is our perfect priest who hears our cries and enters into our affliction with great compassion. That this psalm invites us to pray big prayers to a big God. This psalm invites us to be honest with God in the midst of our pain. This psalm invites us to draw near to him in the darkest nights of our souls, knowing that he's braved the darkest darkness that the world has ever known. The same Jesus, think about this, the same Jesus who saw thousands on a hillside and had compassion for them was moved in the deepest recesses of his being because they were like sheep without a shepherd, that's the same Jesus who's on the receiving end of your prayers. That's unbelievable. He cares about you so much. So much. And the second lyric is this. Yes, he is our perfect priest. He hears our cries. He enters into our affliction with great compassion. But he's also our perfect king who is sovereign over it all and will one day wipe it away forever. That the one who created the heavens and the earth has not been dethroned. He hasn't. No matter what you're going through, 
He will build up Zion, and it won't always be stones and dust. You might have to endure the rubble for a season, whatever that looks like, but he will fulfill his promise to make everything sad untrue. And listen to me. This might be one of the most critical things I could say this morning. Every wound and every scar will have prepared you for an eternal weight of glory. As C.S. Lewis says in his incredible work, The Great Divorce, he says, some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And so for some of you, the best I can say is don't give up. Hang in there. In the midst of those dark nights of the soul, there's always a but you, O Lord, verse 12, to be declared. Whatever, whatever the end of that sentence may be, no matter how things may look, no matter how we may feel in our present situation, God's character and promises are true. So I've asked this question every week of this series, and I'll ask it again. Are these lyrics part of the song of your heart? Because we have a song to sing, and not just in the coming moments as we move into a time of reflection, but a song that you and I carry with us as we leave this place, that we have an opportunity to, to sing with our lives of a compassionate and sovereign God who empathizes with our pain and promises not only to meet us in it, but to abolish it forever one day.